<laughs> Luke chapter 3, verse Father, we thank you for this time of fellowship in you. We thank you that we can enjoy one another, even as we enjoy you, O Lord, and your goodness to us. We pray that indeed you would enable us to feed upon the bread of your word. We pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would encourage us, even as we go forth committed to new obedience. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us the grace that we might be able to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be able to emulate his example more and more perfectly. O oh Lord, we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, for truly in looking at your word, uh, in all of the messages that we have seen, Lord, we have seen our sins, and we ask that you would forgive us. And yet we pray, O oh Lord, that you would renew a right spirit within us, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would not take your Holy Spirit, the fullness of your Spirit, from us. But we pray that you would fill us with power and boldness, that your name might be known in all of the earth, and that our lives might be a praise to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Back in Philadelphia, which is the place where I grew up and spent most, well, all of my life until the last two years of college, there is a radio station whose uh, only programming is to have 24 hours of conversation. As some of you know, this is called a talk show. 24 hours a day, all that you hear are people calling up to talk about the weather, about politics, about the radio announcer telling him what a wonderful person he is. That's very common or just about anything you want to talk about. One time, I just happened to have it on in the evening. I think I was trying to go to bed. And I remember that the burning question of the night was what a person from Maine was called. And, uh, of course, there's Californians and Pennsylvanians. But, you see, they had never heard of a Mainian. <laughs> and, uh, as a result of this great burning question, many people started calling up to give their suggestions as to what a person from Maine was really supposed to be called. And they suggested Mainer, they suggested uh, Down Easter, and of course Down East is the northeastern part of Maine where most people who visit Maine go to because that's where the seashore is, 
But no, that's none of those were the designation of a person from Maine, and I knew it. So I decided to call up and enlighten them. I decided to inform them that the true designation of a person from Maine is maniac. <laughs> that's really true, by the way. Uh, now I got on the phone, and I was so excited that, that the phone rang on the first time. You know, usually you get a busy signal. It rang on the first try. But then it rang, and 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 it rang. <laughs> and my ears started turning red. <laughs> but I didn't give up. I said, I have to really tell these people the truth. And it kept ringing. And finally, after about 200 rings, and I kept shifting my phone back and forth on my ears, they answered. And they said, we're sorry, but the basketball game begins in two minutes. You'll have to call back later. <laughs> the prophet Isaiah tells us that the people back in his day felt a lot like I did on the telephone that night. The Israelites kept trying to get God to do something wonderful. They kept trying to get God to show himself make an appearance from heaven in a mighty way that uh, their cause might be vindicated. For example, in Isaiah 63, verse 15, they said, Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne. Where are your zeal and your might and your compassion? Nothing. No answer. Or 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Nothing. 64, verse 12. After all this, O oh Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent? They kept asking. The phone kept ringing. But God was not about to come down. He was not about to answer. He was not about to burst forth with great power until his children had properly prepared themselves. You may remember the conditions for God's coming down with power back in the days of Moses. You may remember that God was about to come down in great glory on Mount Sinai in the desert. He was about to reveal himself to his people. He was about to give them instruction wisdom, his laws. But we read in Exodus 19, verse 10, that first they had to prepare themselves by consecrating themselves. They had to wash their clothes, they had to abstain from sex, and they had to commit themselves to doing God's will alone. There was a condition for God's coming down with power. And this is what God wanted. From the time of Isaiah to the time of the days of John the Baptist, which we read about here in Luke chapter 3. God wanted consecrated, committed sons. Even one committed son. God wanted a true Israelite whose repentance from sin was perfect. He wanted someone who was 
totally dedicated to doing his will. And of course, as you know, for 800 years, the heavens were not rent, and God did not come down. God was silent. But then it happened. After 30 years of preparation, a man appeared, as we see here on the banks of the Jordan River. He was the one true Israelite that the Father had been looking for. He had perfectly served the Father all the days of his life. He had done his will. But you see, the hardest detail of the Father's will, the greatest desire of the Father for this true Israelite had not yet been agreed to by specific action. There would have to be the willingness to be consecrated to do the Father's will to the point of death, to please the Father that much. And the point is that he who had never and he who would never commit any sin on his own, he would have to agree to become what we've seen is a filthy, repugnant serpent. He who knew no sin would have to be willing to take upon himself the filthiness of our sin and then to suffer the penalty for that sin for those people that God had chosen. You see, friends, the choice of the cross by Jesus Christ was not really made in the Garden of Gethsemane. The choice was made here in the muddy water of the Jordan River. The sentence that we read here is so simple, and I read you a very short passage to show you how simple it is. Sometimes it's so simple, these few sentences here, that we just breeze by it without realizing their significance. But the simple sentence here, in verse 21, speaks volumes of truth to us. It tells us who Jesus was, and it tells us what he was willing to do for his people. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Jesus was baptized too. We read in Matthew that John the Baptist tried to stop Jesus from being baptized. And of course, John in that case was really no different than Simon Peter was a few years later, three years later, when Simon Peter tried to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. No, Lord, you can't do that. But the point is, if Jesus Christ had not been baptized, he would be saying, I am still pure. I do not need baptism. I do not need cleansing, for I bear no sin. I need no cleansing. But Jesus said to John, as recorded in Matthew 3, verse 15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all the Father's will. And that is why the moment that Jesus Christ was baptized, and as he was praying to the Father, perhaps thanking him for the strength to make that commitment, that the phone was answered. The heavens were rent. God did come down in the form of a dove and his voice was heard. This is my son 
whom I loved, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, you see, of course, what these verses are saying. They're telling us that Jesus Christ is the only truly consecrated one. He is the only one who can open the heavens. He is the only one who can remove the obstacles to fellowship with God. Now we've talked this week about a lot of things that we need to do in order to see success in our local churches. We need to preach the whole counsel of God to the whole world. We need to be servants in obedience to God. Each of us must use the gifts that God has given to us, the manifestation of the Spirit, to bless our churches, to bless those who visit our churches, and to bless the world around us, to bless our communities. We need to love our communities in serving them. We saw last night that we need to be a more committed people. We need to be consecrated. We need to be more true Israelites than we are at present. We need to consecrate everything that we have to the Lord. We need to live for his pleasure. But you see, there's one last necessity for any church which desires to be successful. And this is probably the most important one of all. It's mentioned many times in the scripture, and therefore we know it's very important. And that is this. The just, the righteous, shall live, must live by faith. As Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 9 of his prophecy, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The successful church, finally, is a faith-filled church. The other day we saw that, as Herman Ritterboss helps us to see from the writings of Paul, that the goal, the destiny of the church, is the fullness of God. We saw that God has a quantity as well as a quality of blessing to give to his people. John speaks about that fullness in chapter 1. In verse 16 of his gospel. And there John says, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. But you see, John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, shows us that the reception of the fullness of God is, is not like driving into a gas station and just stopping your car and expecting them to fill it up with whatever it is that you need. Calvin shows us that there is a key to receiving the fullness of God. There is a key which unlocks those heavens which are bulging with grace upon grace. There is a key to receiving the grace of God 
in order that we might find success. And Calvin tells us what that key is. He says, in Christ, the wealth of all these things is laid before us, that we may seek them in him. Of his own will, he is ready to flow to us if only we make way for him by faith. I think it was, uh, was it John White in, uh, in his first book talks about, in the fight, I think it was, he talks about uh, the way that he used to live uh, well, he lives up in Canada. He lives where they get a lot of snow. And, and as we had in the state of Maine, every single spring, you, the snow all decides to melt about the same time. And you've got maybe 12 feet of it packed together tightly. So when it melts, you get a lot of water. One of the things, of course, that happens is that the water rushes along. It picks up all kinds of debris with it, sticks and and leaves from the last fall which weren't cleaned up and one of the things that happens very often as we experience is that your drains the storm drains themselves get clogged so much debris is, is going into them and as a result uh, it finally gets clogged so that no water can go in any longer and the water starts backing up and filling up parking lots and, and even filling up streets with water and he says, the answer to that problem, the way to let that water go, is to simply go in there, reach down with your hands, and remove the debris. Remove the debris, and the water will rush in. Calvin is telling us that this is very similar to the way in which the dynamics of the fullness of God work. That God has a bulging fullness of grace to give to his church. But we must reach out with faith. We must make way for God to flow to us by faith. <clears throat> WAGA Television in Atlanta decided to do a consumer report on luggage for its viewers. And so reporters for the Station took an American tourist or suitcase to the Atlanta Zoo. They gave it to Willie B., a 450-pound gorilla. Willie B. was given the advantage of watching the American Tourister commercial, which had already been filmed, on a television set which was placed outside of his cage. In that commercial, as some of you may have seen on television, we see an ape throwing an American tourister suitcase around his cage. Of course, through the magic of television and the advertising world, the bag remains completely intact, and we are convinced to have great faith in the durability of American tourister. Willie B. decided to modify the commercial a slight bit, however. Willie B. smashed the suitcase he peeled the leather-like covering off the side. <laughs> he, he pounded it open. 
and then he ripped it apart to inches. <laughs> and then for good measure, <laughs> he ambled over to his hose. He filled it up he filled up one of the halves of the case and he drank out of it. <laughs> So much for American touristers' durability. <laughs> Last fall, I went through a very trying experience. It all happened as I was heading north from San Diego in the car of our intern. Our destination is one that some of you, probably many of you, shared. We were heading to the convocation of Westminster Seminary. As we drove along in the car, um, I was not only serving as a passenger, I was also serving as the navigator. No one else in the car had been to Escondido. No one else knew how to find the Escondido Christian Reformed Church. But of course, I had uh, a I had memorized the map, which uh, was in my Bible, uh, which showed the way. Everyone uh, seemed quite content with my leadership and direction until we left Interstate 15. Then it happened. After a mile or so of stoplights and dairy farms, the first question arose, where are we? <laughs> Why, Escondido? Perhaps it was the tone in which I answered, but a scant two blocks later, the rebellion began. <laughs> are you sure this is Escondido? It doesn't look like Escondido. How long do we go on this road? I'm sure we took a wrong turn. Soon, even my most confident assurances <laughs> were turned aside by moans of doubt and despair. It seemed as if my own wife was about to join the ranks of skeptics. <laughs> when I began to intently scan the horizon. <laughs> street after street went by without a sign of Route 78. Perhaps they were right. <laughs> Perhaps in the darkness I had missed the turn. In the midst of the growing panic and the lateness of the hour, I announced, you can turn right any time. The next street only went left. <laughs> the car was filled with derisive laughter. But then, just then, when all seemed to be lost, when it seemed as if they were about to turn around, the headlights caught that beautiful green Route 78 sign. 
O ye of little faith. <laughs> so much for confidence in uh, navigators such as myself. So much for confidence in American touristers' durability. What John Calvin is telling us is that there is undiminished fullness. There is absolute certainty of blessing. There is surely a river of water of life. There is success without question. There is a shower of blessing in Jesus Christ. And the means that God has given to us to transfer those blessings from his heaven to our lives, to our churches, is faith. You see, all of our efforts at making our churches successful will fail. They must fail if we are depending on our dedication, our hard work, our consecration to open up the treasury of heaven. God will not come down with spiritual power if we begin and we end with our sacrificial yet faithless work. The way to God and his resources is the same for us as it was in Isaiah and John's day. It is only through the perfectly consecrated one, Jesus Christ, the true Israelite, that the Spirit will descend in power into the lives of our churches. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Do you want to have success in God's eyes? Do you want to be pleasing in his sight as Jesus Christ was pleasing? As the writer to the Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It is impossible. It is impossible to achieve his goals of success without faith. Without faith, as we see later in Hebrews, and as we see from the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament, without faith, we cannot reach the paradise of God. We cannot reach the promised land without faith. But you see, how often are our eyes not upon the true Israelite, but upon the disobedient Israelites. How often do we take them for our example instead of Jesus Christ? We are quick to get out our calculators and to count up our resources. We are quick to figure up how many earthly things, how many people, how much money, what, what, what uh, church building we have, how much youth we have to rely on. And after we've counted it up, then we decide whether we can make it. The Israelites did that, you know. They checked out with some good spies the situation in Palestine. And they decided that all of those iron chariots, all of those giants who were tall and numerous, all of the cities of the enemy which were large and which had walls to the sky were too much. You see, they did not do what Jesus Christ did. 
they did not trust in the resources of God instead of the resources that they could see to give them victory in the face of seemingly impossible odds. They refused to live by faith. They insisted on living by sight and therefore they did not enter God's rest, God's place of blessing. You know, we have many problems in our churches today. Most of our churches face tremendous financial pressures. We have relatively few people and many financial obligations. Some of our churches, as we know, are declining in numbers. In Bayview Church itself, we've lost 10 families already in 1981 to job or education-related moves. We have five churches now in Southern California without pastors. And perhaps the people of God there are wondering if they can do anything on their own without a pastor. Maybe they're wondering if they can get a good pastor, the pastor that they need especially the one who can really minister effectively in their midst. Perhaps as you've, you've heard some of the ideas that, that uh, you've heard, this, perhaps as you've listened to some of the ideas that we've set forth this week, you wonder whether you can ever get them to work in your church. You know that uh, change in some situations involves going against the grain, years of established tradition, of lack of change. You may feel as though you're going to have to buck City Hall in order to get your church obeying Jesus Christ in some of the areas that we've looked at. You may look at the sorry record that we have in the Orthodox Presbyterian <coughs> Church in bringing our covenant children to a mature faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does the scripture say when we look at all of this failure? When we look at all of these seemingly insurmountable obstacles? What does the scripture say to us? The scripture says, nothing is impossible with God. And why is nothing impossible to us? It is because the king has come. And his kingdom with all of its power has come. It is because there is, because of Jesus Christ, there is a bank filled with grace in heaven. And our credit as God's people, our credit limit is unlimited. We can draw all that we want and all that we need. But you see, we have to believe not in ourselves. There are some people who believe a lot in themselves. We must believe in the ability of God. We must believe in the generosity of God. We must be willing to become, if we're not already, a church filled with faith. We must believe that God has a fullness beyond our imagination in Jesus Christ. 
We must have faith that change is possible. You know, I heard somebody say uh, about six months ago when we were talking about church union, getting together uh, northerners and southerners and different schools of Presbyterians. And he said, you know, it'll never work. It has never worked because it has never worked in history before. Every time it's been tried, it's failed. And therefore it won't work now. You see, totally apart from what you think about church union, what that is saying is that change is not possible. It's saying that maturity in the body of Christ, that growth is not possible. It's saying that God cannot do wonderful and miraculous things, especially as this this age draws to an end. You see, we must have faith. We must believe that Jesus Christ has the resources that we need. We must have faith that change is possible. We must also have faith to fail. We must have faith to fail. We believe in defeats, says Spurgeon. We believe in defeats. We believe in going back with the banner trailed in the mire, persuaded that this may be the surest way to lasting triumph. We believe in waiting, weeping, and agonizing. We believe in a non-success which prepares us for doing greater and higher work, for which we should not have been fitted unless anguish had sharpened our soul. Faith, says Spurgeon, enables us to rejoice in the Lord that our infirmities become platforms for the display of God's grace. You see, we must, we must have faith that our past failures, that our present failures in our church's lives can, by the grace of God, become successes through God's strength and God's help. You see, that's one of the lessons, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because that's one of the lessons I had to learn. I had to learn to believe in the power of God. See, at Bayview Church, when I first came there, we had a very good and warm relationship, and uh, the people were very appreciative of my ministry, but after a year, a year and a half there, you know, we seemed to be going along on a plateau, even uh, perhaps decreasing a bit. And I knew that something was wrong, and the church knew that something was wrong. And you know, finally, one night, I decided what it was. I decided that we were trying to depend on all of the gifted people we have in our church. I was trying to depend upon myself in order to bring success, in order to bring growth. And the Lord said, no, that's not the way it works. The fullness is in me. And so we began to pray. Gary was one of those who was praying. Gary's here. Very thankful for that. People began to pray. They just prayed, Lord, bless our church. Give us of your fullness. And as I look at the history of Bayview Church, you see it was that prayer. 
It was that calling upon the Lord which turned us around. It was that dependence upon God instead of ourselves which gave us success and blessing to the extent we have experienced it. You see, we have to believe in the power of the Word of God. You see, I don't consider myself um, an exceptionally good counselor. Um, I consider myself a preacher. But, of course, uh, you do a lot of preaching and counseling, and it helps people to be practical and bring things to bear on their lives. So I do a lot of counseling. But, you see, I'm still very scared of counseling situations. I'm petrified of them. I always say, well, what if I won't know the right answer from Jay Adams? <laughs> what will happen when I've exhausted everything that I've learned? So one of the things I, I've learned is to be very dependent. Whenever I go to call on people in seemingly impossible situations, and I'm really worried, some disciplinary situations, as well as counseling, I just say, Lord, I don't know what to say. And I don't know what to do. And you know me, Lord, you know if I'm just on my own, I'm going to mess it up. And yet the Lord, because of that dependence upon him, has done some amazing things. He does it all the time. You see, we must believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must believe in the power of the Word of God to change people's lives. One of the things that we've seen is that when we brought this word to bear in disciplinary situations, we've seen change. We actually summoned a man to come before our session and he came. <laughs> a man who had denied the faith to me. As I sat in the restaurant with him, he says, I do not believe in the Bible. I was just a hypocrite. And I said to him, I said, I hear what you're saying and I have to act on what you're saying and I'll have to bring charges against you for denying the faith. But I know that in your heart of hearts you don't believe that. So we left. We summoned him and he came. And he repented. He said, no, that was not true. I was just depressed. I was just discouraged. And it was the word of God, you see, that I laid on him which brought about a change in his life. You see, we must believe in the power of the word of God. We must believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of our churches in order to bring us blessing. Robert Murray McShane, in closing, that great Scottish preacher who died at the age of 29 after only seven and a half years of ministry. In 1843, he said, when a child is thirsty for its mother's breast, it will not keep silent. No more will a child of God who is thirsty keep silent. Thirst, dryness, emptiness. If we have that in our lives, if we have that in our churches, do you long for drops of grace? Says McShane. Do you long for success? Well, then don't ask for drops. Don't ask for drops when God offers floods. Open your mouth through the vehicle of faith, which is prayer, and God will fill it. The successful church is a church which is filled with the fullness of God, 
by faith. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you make it possible for us to be here that you keep us from each other's throats, that you keep us from totally destroying this earth on which you have placed us, that you keep us, O Lord, from engaging in the most heinous sin and destroying one another by your precious Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you not only restrain this world from even greater evil than it engages in, but we thank you that you use that powerful Holy Spirit to draw us irresistibly to yourself in love. We thank you, O Lord, that Jesus Christ indeed determined before the foundation of the world that we would be his and that you would love us to the uttermost that you would be consecrated to our salvation, unworthy sinners that we are. We thank you, O Lord, that your Spirit came down in power throughout redemptive history. We thank you, O Lord, that you never gave up on us. We thank you that you sent us messengers again and again, prophets and apostles, that you worked miracles, that you've given us preachers, you've given us members of your church all that we might hear and that we might know that love that you have set upon us oh lord we pray that you would help us to be a people that does not forget either your love or where all blessing and all life comes from help us to remember oh lord that you are the fountain of life and only out of you comes any goodness that we possess. Forgive us, O Lord, for our pride, our self-trust. Forgive us also, O Lord, for our disobedience and our failures in not attaining the goals that you have set for us. Change us, O Lord. Turn us that we might be turned. Give us, O Lord, that awareness of our sin. Give us the strength of your spirit to do what you desire. Help us to be a people that truly lives for your pleasure. In Christ's name.